0: Welcome to the Racquetball Show podcast. On this one, we have a great one for you. We have Fran Davis as the interview guest. Fran is the coach of Paola Longoria, Rocky Carson, among many others. Those are her biggest players, biggest names. But she's a fantastic coach. She goes around and has probably worked with many of you listeners. She had a lot of insight. She had a lot of thoughts on how you can improve your game. A lot of interesting thoughts about... Paola and Rocky and how she coaches and handles working with those players and just a lot of interesting things from Fran. I I really enjoyed this discussion. I also do an instructional segment on strategy so if you are looking to improve your game and maybe don't haven't learned enough about the strategic elements of racquetball this instructional segment is going to really help you in that regard. So, without further ado, let's get into this episode of the Racquetball Show podcast.
1: Ten, serving ten, must run by two points. It is absolute pandemonium here. I will be the greatest player to ever play the game.
0: Anybody who won't die for it Should shouldn't be, shouldn't on the be court. playing racquetball.
1: Get that ball. Get the ball.
0: On this instructional segment of the podcast, I wanted to talk about strategy. This is something I haven't talked about on the podcast yet, but I think it is an invaluable part of your game, and I think working on your strategy is huge. It's something that I used to not think a ton about. I would sort of just take shots that I practiced in practice. I would take shots that I thought were kind of cool, (laughs) just trying to roll out splats and pinches and things. And the more that I learned and thought about strategy and what decisions I could be making to raise my chances of beating an opponent, the more success that I found that I had. And when I analyze or break down really, really good players, they're just making very smart decisions consistently throughout a match. So when it comes to strategy, I wanted to talk about a few concepts that could help you in your game. One is taking high percentage shots. So I talked about how I used to just go for rollouts and splats and pinches essentially because they felt really good they are they're a cool shot and at a certain level they worked well for me I found that when I was playing at the open level or maybe a little bit below pinches would work a lot because you could leave a ball you could hit a 6 inch high pinch or you could, even if you messed up your pinch a little bit, hit it even a foot high. Often, a player would barely get to it and either just skip it or not do much with it. Worst case scenario, they kill it, but that wasn't super, super common. But I found as I raised my level, got to maybe a high open level or a pro level, if you make any sort of mistake with a pinch, it is, it's essentially a setup for players. They're just fast enough to where they're getting to a bad pinch, and they're in the front of the court and shooting it. So you're setting yourself up for failure if a pinch or a splat is a shot that you're hitting consistently. You want to think more high percentage. So what can you hit that does not require you to be perfect? And maybe you do hit pinches at a high percentage from a certain area. It's just worthwhile thinking about what would be the highest percentage shot in any given situation. And usually that's going to be Passes, which is the next thing I want to talk about. So, lines and cross courts. This is a big thing that helped my game. Is essentially if you constrain it to those are your only two options, not that they are, but if you think of it this way, where you can only hit a down the line pass shot or a cross court pass shot, that actually is a good way to think about the game, I think. So, Think of hitting it where your opponent isn't. Hit it where they ain't. And your opponent, it's very hard to, the racquetball court is 20 feet wide. It's hard to cover that entire distance. And a pass is a shot generally that if you don't hit it perfectly, if you leave it high, that's not too big of a deal so long as it's close to the sidewall. If you don't hit it too close to the sidewall, it's still a bit tough to get over and get. Another thing to realize with hitting pass shots is that if you can have some sense or some view of where your opponent is when you're striking the ball, that will allow you to understand what the best shot is going to be. So if your opponent, let's say you're on the left side of the court and your opponent's crowding you, meaning that they're shifted over toward the left, the cross court's going to be your best option because they're not covering that as well. For them to cover a cross court, they're going to have to really move over there to get it. Similarly, if they if you're on the left side and they are way over toward the right side, they're almost expecting maybe a pinch or a cross-court, or they're just in a bad positioning, hitting it right down that left wall, as close to the wall as possible, is going to be your best option. Also, when you do hit cross-court passes, you want to hit it as far away from your opponent as possible, which generally means not that you're going to hit a the traditional cross-court I think people think of as something that would go to the other side of the court, but hit the back corner. Instead, hitting a cross-court pass where it is striking the sidewall directly across from where your opponent is, that is going to require them to... The ground they have to cover is essentially they have to go all the way to the sidewall to go get it, rather than maybe um, a few feet to, their, to either side, they have to cover all the way to that sidewall, And that's just forcing them to cover more distance, which is always a good thing. Next is pick on a weakness. So I think this is especially helpful with serve or serve return, but understanding what your opponent is weak at. If they have a weak forehand or backhand, hit a high percentage of your shot to that side that they struggle with. If they struggle maybe with a slower ball, or if they struggle to move their feet, These are all good things to know, and you want to tailor your game plan to what this specific opponent is weak at. Or in doubles, it might be there's a weaker player, hit the ball to that weaker player. It might be the case that hitting one up the middle works the best, maybe you have a lefty righty combo and it's both their backhands, and their backhands are weaker. Going right up the middle can be the best, even though going down the middle in singles is never really something that makes sense, it very well could be in doubles. Next is just be intentional with your shots. Don't just swing willy-nilly. This is a somewhat difficult one because I think you don't want to constantly be thinking and in your head when you're playing. You want it to be more free-flowing and using the subconscious because if you're thinking about mechanics and all that sort of stuff, You're going to be too in your head and the game happens so fast that if you're consciously thinking about everything, that's not a recipe for success. Rather, you want to let things flow and you want to let that unconscious competence take over. You want to let those ingrained habits, things that you've been practicing, things that your body just knows, you want to let that take over. If you think about, I come from a baseball background, you don't have enough time to think about hitting I think there's a famous quote that goes, you can't think and swing at the same time. And so when I say be intentional with your shots, it's not, it's a combination of think about it and also shut your brain off and let the subconscious take over. In other words, I would say think about it when you are in timeouts or prior to the game. But when you're in a game, you want to just... Tweak strategy here and there, but don't be overthinking it consistently. Definitely be intentional about it. Definitely, if you have a coach, talk it over with them. Even if you're just on your own, think about your general overall strategy and try to execute to it. But if you're just constantly thinking and thinking and thinking about every shot and where it needs to go, that's going to be less effective than if you're just letting the subconscious take over. So to sum it up, I think the biggest things that you can think of here are hit high percentage shots and hit it where they ain't, and pick on an opponent's weakness. I think those are the biggest things you can think of when it comes to strategy, and if you take all those things into account, that's going to really boost your game. Often it's not just the skills on the court, it's not just your ability to hit rollouts and to hit with power and to be fast that's going to win you a game. Often the player who is making the smartest decisions is going to be the the winner or the most successful player on the court. So there you have it, that is the instructional segment on strategy. I wanted to take a quick moment to plug one of my sponsors, Gearbox Racquetball. Now, full disclosure, Gearbox sponsors me as a player, so of course you know, sponsoring me on this podcast makes total sense, and I wouldn't sponsor any other brand, but I choose Gearbox for a reason. I think they're a fantastic brand. They provide top-of-the-line racquetball equipment, really anything you need—rackets, eye guards, gloves, bags— And all the other accessories that you might need. And as a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you guys already know that. You're aware of all the brands out there because probably if you're listening to this, you're pretty darn into racquetball. So I just wanted to take a moment to plug Gearbox because I think they not only provide awesome products, but they do an awesome job of promoting racquetball. And they have amazing customer service and everyone you interact with on the Gearbox team is an awesome person. At least that's what I've found in my experience. So if you're in the market for racquetball equipment, I would advise that you check out Gearbox. You can check them out at GearboxSports.com. I'm here with Coach Fran Davis. Fran, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure. Like I told you a little earlier, I had a a full weekend of coaching. Uh, It's the first time ever in my career that I've coached Paola Longoria and Rocky Carson during the same weekend and they both made the finals and the time was exactly the same. They both played 12 noon Eastern time and I had my iPad and I had my you know, computer and it was back and forth calling them both. So it was uh, a little different than what I'm used to, but nonetheless a happy different.
0: <laughs> That's kind of shocking to me. It's the first time they've been, I mean, they always make the finals seemingly. It's the first time they've been on the same day. Or just the well, same no, time? not
1: the same day, but the same time. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, they're often on different time zones. So if Piola's on the East Coast, say Rocky Central time, it would be different. So we've always, it's never been exactly the same time and on the same coast, which means the same time zone.
0: Got it. So, so it, was
1: what, a, <laughs> it was rough, but I made it through.
0: Yeah. So those are obviously your two highest profile people that you coach. What is it like coaching Rocky and Paola, people just at the top of the game in the sport?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's a total uh, pleasure because of the kind of people that they are. They're not only great players, but um, their, their personalities, their essence, they are both loved by all the racquetball community. Um, you know, people adore Rocky. They uh, adore Paola. And it's really important for me when I coach somebody to have the utmost respect for them. Uh, not only on the court, but off the court. And if uh, they misbehave or they don't have the right demeanor, it's very difficult for me to coach them. The two of them are probably the epitome of uh, two of the best players to actually coach, um, both on the men's and women's pro tour. So it's 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 an honor and a privilege.
0: Yeah. And then in your role as their coach, what do you actually do? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis? Maybe when you're not at a tournament and when you are at a tournament, what is, what does that look like?
1: Well, you know, when, when I'm not at a tournament, especially just as we're doing today, we're doing a podcast, um, you know, with the, the electronic world, the way it is, you don't really have to be there. So like, uh, you know, the IRT, which is the men's tour and the LPRT, they both stream. So I'm able to uh, coach them virtually. It's not that, as good as being there and being able to see them and but it definitely makes it doable in terms of coaching when I look at all their video I'm able to send them um, things they're doing well things I want them to adjust I send them videos of actual drills that I want them to do in order to you know enhance what they're doing or make some slight changes you know whether it be you know a basic you know off the back wall drill or a open stance drill uh, an overhead, whatever it is, uh, with technology, it's doable. And then I see them enough uh, around the U.S. And then, of course, I go with Paola some of her international events. I was just with uh, coaching her at the Pan Am Games in Lima, Peru this past summer, where she won the three gold medals. And it's really nice because we were uh, while we were there, we just did everything. We we hung out as friends. We ate we ate together we drilled together. I coached her, uh, you know, we watched video at night, and made adjustments. So it was the full gamut, made sure she stayed on her routine. Uh, even though I'm not with both of them all the time, I always text them usually two to three times a week. How's training going? How are you feeling? What you're doing? And then we usually touch base once or twice a week. So we're always in contact. And I do that with even my top junior players um, and, uh, some of my, uh, amateur players that want that kind of coaching. So it, you, it's building a relationship. You know, you have to, you have to like and respect one another in order for them, um, to, uh, want to do and, and, uh, make some of the adjustments that I recommend. They have to believe in your philosophy. I have to believe in their training and their, uh, work ethic. So it's, it's the total gamut. It's really, you know, like, you know, it's a partnership and it's 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 a uh, a marriage, so to speak, where, you know, we have to enhance one another's, um, you know, excellence and the things that we bring to the table.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'm curious. I mean, you've been working with both of those players for a long time now. How has that evolved over the years?
1: Uh, yeah, I've been working with both of them for 10 years and it just keeps getting stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper. And, you know, I know both their families, uh, I've been to family functions with them. You know, I'm part of their, I'm part of their family as both Rocky and Paola are part of my family. You know, when, when they visit here, you know, uh, I make dinner, they come to my house. Um, I've had Charlie Pratt to my house. So it's really, it's, it's important, um, that it's not on a just a superficial level for, for me. It's really important that we go many, many levels deep um, in order to to bring out the best in them and also to bring out the best in me.
0: Yeah. And I want to get into your background a little bit. So how did you start? You uh, You were obviously a player back in the day. How did you transition from, I guess, what was your playing career like? And then how did you transition into coaching?
1: Well, uh, you know, my actual degree is a uh, Bachelor of Science in, in teaching, and I wanted oh. to go into physical education. So I have my degree in teaching, and but I decided, you know what, if I don't try the Pro Tour now, as as you know, as one gets older and things, uh, other things come into your life, you never really get to uh, pursue a dream that you've always had. So I decided to, uh, you know, get my degree and then go right into, onto the pro tour. And I played the tour for somewhere around eight to 10 years. Um, and it was a natural fit for me to start um, doing clinics and doing, uh, you know, one night exhibitions to supplement my income while I was out there doing uh, tournaments. And it just, I started to love it more and more and more and at, the, at the time. Uh, Steve Stranimo was the big teacher, and uh, I went to a couple of his camps and I said, "Wow, I really 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 enjoy you know working with people and teaching them and I started doing a little coaching and one thing led to another and I decided that when I reached the point where I couldn't do both, I made a choice of coaching and I actually you know unfortunately make more coaching than some of the players make playing except for somebody maybe like piola." Um, that is what I call the Serena Williams of uh, of racquetball where she has so many endorsements and the government supports her. And you know, the the Mexican government, Bolivian government, all of those uh, foreign countries, they actually give their athletes, you know, stipends per month. They pay their way to tournaments. You know, they're on bonuses, et cetera, You know, and it's sad that in the U.S. it is not like that. You know, and I even said something to Rocky at the Pan Am Games you know um piola which i didn't know is the winningest athlete for the pan american games for mexico both men and women she's won nine gold medals over three pan american uh, games 2011 in guadalajara 2015 in toronto and now 2019 in lima and they treat her like we treat our basketball players or our football players i mean she is uh you know, very, very, very well known and companies want to sponsor her and by winning a gold medal, it's worth more than just the gold medal because, you know, they get endorsements and, uh, you know, the government and sponsors, you know, support her uh, endeavors and it just makes it easier to play because then you're you're paid what you deserve and you're not having to work two and three jobs along with playing. Um, because then you can't really focus on being the best athlete that you could be in that sport.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually have a, a quick story to, story to share about with Paola. So um a friend of mine, I, I live in Portland, Oregon, and Nike, the headquarters, is in mm-hmm. Portland or near it. Yeah. And a friend of mine worked at Nike and his job was to give the athletes um make sure that they were getting their sponsorship gear and money and everything like that and make sure they were satisfied and I was in I was at the U.S. Open I was in Minneapolis and he goes hey I know you're in Minneapolis do you know who Paola Longoria is I was (laughs) like yes uh pretty big name in racquetball and he he goes yeah we're setting her up with a thing at Nike in Minneapolis I just thought it was so funny that um you know she has sport in that way and that just the connection was wild. But could you talk a little bit more about Paola and her fame in Mexico? Because I think it's really unique in the racquetball world, the fame and the amount of money she's been able to earn, the amount of endorsements she has. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about what that's like for her? Well, and you. what
1: that's like for her and me. And I you. Mean, you know, when I travel with her, um, You know, whether we're just sitting at a restaurant and, you know, having dinner or we're going through the airport or we're at a mall or whatever we are, everyone knows her. You know, it's kind of like I don't play tennis, but I just went to the U.S. Open tennis tournament in New York and I wanted to get people's autograph. Right. That's how she is. She is looked at, in my opinion, as a professional athlete should be looked at. And to me, it's a shame that we don't treat our professional racquetball players here in the U S the way, uh, the, uh, other countries. And I know, you know, when, when the both tours came back from Bolivia, you know, um, this past March, they were treated like Kings and Queens. You know, people were running after them that through the airport and asking for autographs and that's how it should be. So I often still are, sometimes get surprised when we're just at dinner and somebody wants to take a picture with Piola and she never says no. I mean, we could be in an event for two hours after she's done until the last autograph is signed, the last picture is signed. And one of the greatest moments is when when she actually played in San Luis Potosi, which is her hometown, and they have a tournament named after her, the Piola Longoria experience. She came out of the court and there are hundreds and hundreds of kids just waiting to touch her and get her you know wristband or uh, get her racket or just kind of like what they do at the U.S. Open when, when they're done with their tournament the U.S. Open tennis they sign four balls and they hit it out to the audience and people are you know scrambling to get that that it you know she is the epitome of what a professional athlete should be and is treated in any other sport except racquetball here in the U.S.
0: Yeah, super cool. I wanted to get into, you were talking about how your coaching profession, you not only coach the top athletes, but you coach everybody uh, in racquetball at all levels. What does that look like? I know you do a lot of clinics, you travel around a lot for that. What has that experience been like?
1: Well, I absolutely love my, my goal, um, as a coach is I want to make a difference in someone's life, whether it's a Paola Longoria or it's a C player at my club, whether, um, they're, a you know, a tournament player, you know, locally playing in a shootout. If I can make a difference in how not only they approach the game, but how that helps them approach life. Because to me, it's, you know, racquetball is part of life. So, If you're mentally tough on the court, you know how to adjust to uh, problems that occur. If you know how to adjust to maybe somebody bullying you on the court, trying to say, no, that was a good shot. Um, And you know how to stand up to people. It just makes you a better person in life. So that's my goal is um, making a difference. And uh, one of the people that you actually know, Wayne Antone, when he won the uh, junior, the boys junior, 18 and under, he lost the – he was playing in his uh, uh, Daniel uh, uh, Moro uh, Rojas, Daniel Rojas, playing in Stockton. And it's his second year, and he's playing him. He loses the first game, I don't know, maybe 15-5. And um, he's now down 9-4. I tell him to call a timeout. He comes off the court. He kicks a water bottle. He does all these things. I take him outside. And I basically talked to him, and I said, you know, so you really think that this behavior is going to help you turn the match around to win. Um, and if you think that, be my guest, then you don't need me. If you want to turn this match around, these are the things you need to do. You know, it's one point at a time. You know, I said, you're in great shape. You could get to all the balls. Um, you know, Daniel is is uh, getting tired. I could tell that he wants to end points really fast, keep them deep. Anyway, comes back in, turns it around, wins 15-12, and is down 9-4 in the breaker and wins 11-10. And the, it's not about him winning, um, even though the text, the following text, is based on that. He's driving home after he won the boys 18 and under for the second year in a row, and he says to me, Fran, I was a train derailing. If you were not there to get me back on track, I would have never won. That's why I coach Mm. for those reasons. I I I have another story where somebody, um, she never made it past the semifinals, a junior player in junior nationals. She was always in the shadows of some of the better players. And uh, about five years ago, she sent me an email and saying, Fran, I just want to let you know my parents are doing this, that, and the other thing, my family. But I want to let you know uh, I'm in law school. I just passed my bar. And I want you to know that the things you taught me about discipline and hard work ethic and commitment and never say die and find a way and all the things that I work with my athletes on, whether it's juniors or adults, you are part of me becoming a lawyer. And you ask, you know, why I teach or why I coach. Those are the reasons to make a difference in someone's life, not only on the court, but take what they learn on the court and use it off the court and make them a better person for it.
0: Wonderful. So having such a great purpose like that, is that, did you find that the sport was doing that for you when you were a player? Uh, Or I guess guess what is the reason that you, it seems like you have this mindset around it that you like the sport as it relates to life um, and the bigger picture. What gave you that perspective?
1: I don't know. Uh, along yeah. the way I've had different mentors, um, you know, uh, Jim Pruitt, uh, Jim Winterton, um, Steve Stranimo, different people along the way. And then people outside the sport, uh, Bernie Kohout, you know, teaching me about, you know, what life's about, you know, life is not about just, you know, winning. It's about, um, taking what you learn and applying it to, you know, to other things and making you a better person. And, You know my mom you know she should rest in peace she was my rock she taught me you know to always find a way to uh you know to be kind to people to see the 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 good in people you know when I was a player I must say that you know as a lot of people I was too young um I didn't allow a lot of this to to uh be utilized in, in my competitive nature. And, you know, I was feisty and, 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 you know, I wanted to win. And if I had the tools that I have now, as most people usually say, then I probably could have achieved maybe being the number one player in the world. I got as ranked as high as fifth. Um, but I've taken what I've learned along the way from, you know, different people in my life, whether it be in racquetball or just in my life in general. And, um, you know, getting my degree in teaching and I just decided, you know, I love the way I feel when I see somebody, a C player, a beginner, you know, win a match that they never would have won unless they had the information um, that I share with them. and. You know, it's it's like, you know, Paola, this, you know, again, the epitome of coaching is coaching the number one player in the world. At the Pan Am Games, her and Samantha were down 1-5 in the breaker against Guatemala in the, Pan Amer- in, in the uh, gold medal uh, women's doubles. And they took a timeout. We talked. We made adjustments. They came back, and they won 11-5. So the Guatemala team never scored another point. That's what coaching's about, is them listening to some of the adjustments that you know the coaches see, believing in us, believing in that you know we have that third eye and taking it and using it to the umph degree. Um, and you know, winning a gold medal is a testament of being able to make that adjustment um, when they were down one five. You know, most people would choke. Most people would just you know uh, not be able to rise to the occasion. But taking it one point at a time and using that information and making the adjustments on the serve or the shots or the return of serve, you know, helped her win a gold medal. So her winning a gold medal and the C player at my club winning a league match, it's still the, the greatest feeling in the world.
0: Yeah. Do you have a particular time that was the best feeling, maybe the highlight moment of your coaching career?
1: Uh I've had so many um yeah you know uh you know when when uh you know you're on the line and you know the firing line and you have to you know just like a football coach or a tennis coach or you know whatever and is it the coach it's the athlete I think it's the team it's the team of how we work together to make those adjustments so I have a lot of great um you know memories um I'll never forget, you know, the first year I coached Jason Menino in 2001. We went to the pro nationals in Las Vegas and we were playing it with a, uh, at a club that the court, the front wall was glass, completely glass. Um, and the, the bleachers were in front of the glass, right, to watch the match. And, you know, I see him and we're hanging out, we're all talking. And Jason says to me, I hate that court. I've never made it past the quarterfinals of this tournament. I can't stand that court. And I didn't think anything of it till 15 minutes later when we, you know, kind of separated and were saying hello to people. So I ran and I went and found him and uh, I talked to him and I gave him a mental toughness tip that I learned from a, a James Lear, one of the prominent uh, mental toughness coaches in the game of tennis about talking to yourself in front of a mirror 25 times, three times a day, and I basically said, you have to say to yourself, I love that court. Everybody's in the same boat you are, but I love that court. And he added a little mantra when he passed the court at the games. He blew a kiss to the court and he said, I love you. Not only did he you know, make it past the quarters, he beat John Ellis and Cliff Swain in the same tournament to win that tournament. So that, again, was another highlight of being able to change his mindset from being negative to being positive and believing in yourself and using tools that I've learned from, you know, other uh, other people, you know, uh, mental toughness coaches, you know, uh, trainers, you know, all the things that it takes to be the best that you can be.
0: Yeah. So at this point, I'm curious, in your in the way that you coach, do you find that it's mostly you end up coaching people on the mental side of the game versus the physical, or what is the bulk of what you end up advising people on?
1: Well, you know, like someone like Paola, she has a mental toughness coach, uh, you know, Mm. uh, Magali, and she has a trainer um, that works on the physical part of her game, um, Nelson. And, uh, you know, and I'm her, you know, technical uh, strategic coach. And then she has a sparring partner, you know, Edson. I mean, we all work together, but when I'm at a tournament, you know, I'm doing it all, you know, like sometimes I have to help her warm up for a match because Nelson's not with us because there's, the funds are not there and Magali can't travel to all the tournaments. So, you know, I use things that she's taught me and we text each other and she'll tell me what to say to her during the match. And, um, and then what I've learned over the years, you know, what's worked and, um, you know, like you know, we went, when we went to the tournament, you know, and we're using uh, a different ball, you know, the, the pro tour, uh, the IRT and the LPRT, they use the, the pen ball. Well, at the international competitions, they're using the gearbox ball. So, you know, it's a, it's a different ball and how it plays. And I said, well, you you know, I said, just like in tennis, they play on different surfaces on football. They play, you know, and different surfaces, you have to learn how to accept whatever's there. And so sometimes I have to use my, you know, mental experience you know that i've learned over the years to help them learn how to accept you know whatever it is that comes their way whatever obstacle they think is in their mind and have to change how they're thinking their negative thinking to positive thinking like i did to you know um jason with you know hating that court and within five days he loved the court you know so those are challenges so i I can't say I, i i have to say that i am you know, on paper, her technical and strategic coach, but I wear all the hats, um, but I don't have all the tools that Nelson and Magali have. And they help me along the way. If I'm the only one that's at the tournament, Um, helping her in that moment, they give me support along the way.
0: When it comes to maybe a beginner player, what do you find is the most common thing that you end up advising a beginner player on?
1: Well, you know, it's about, you know, one, you're here to have fun, you know, two, you're going to have a lot more fun if you get somewhat, not, you're never going to be perfect, somewhat technically sound, you know, and so I start with that, you know, some very basic thing about the grip and the the forehand and the backhand, and, you know, if you don't have a good ceiling ball, you're not going to be able to get your opponent out of the middle, so it's all about the very, very basics, because they don't want to know the intricate details. Not all of them. Some of them might. Um, but I, I like to make sure that they're, you know, technically, you know, somewhat sound. And I, um, the metaphor I use, uh, you know, that my, uh, video is building your ball dream house. And I tell them, you know, when you're building a house, you have to have a solid foundation. If you don't, somewhere along the line, how many ever years down the road, uh, things are, are, are going to settle in and, um, You're going to, you know, have cracks in your foundation. You're going to have, you know, your frame of your house doing something you don't want it to be doing. So I'm in, I don't, you know, when Nike came out with the saying, just do it, I added to it, don't just do it, do it right. So, but I keep it very simple. You know, you don't want to teach a beginner, whether they're six years old or they're 16 years old or they're 60 years old, you know, to, you know, you have to drill, you know, Three hours a day, five days a week, and you have to do this, this, this. No, you've got to make it fun. I use targets. I'll put garbage cans in the back when they're practicing a ceiling ball. Say, hey, let's see how many times you can get it. You know, the ceiling ball into the you know garbage can on one bounce. Or hey, let's see how many times you can hit that can on the front wall. Or whatever it might be. But I do believe that they have to be somewhat proficient at knowing how to grip the racket. How to hit a forehand, how to hit a backhand, how to hit the basic drive, the basic lob serve, how to return the shot, rush back and get back to the middle. And that's what they need to know. And then if they decide they love the game and they want to pursue it and go further, go from, you know, a beginner or a D player to a C or, you know, move up the ladder, then we talk.
0: Yeah. So it's
1: got to be fun
0: absolutely i love it
1: i mean even with piol and rocky you know drilling sometimes and you you are a, obviously a, a a top you know professional player i'm sure there are times that you know bore drilling gets boring and you've got to make it fun and you've got to you know find a way you know to um to put in the time to get that consistency level that you need at the at the pro level you know like i was very very amazed i've been watching the us open tennis and Nadal who happens to be in the finals today um he's playing right now so um I'll be I'm taping it so I could watch it but every time he has a drill session because they only play every other day so on the day that they're not playing they have a uh, an hour to an hour and a half drill session he finishes his drill session 30 minutes of drilling and they actually showed um when he would hit a serve and that he was going for particular corners, he was going for down the tee or out out wide, they would highlight it with a light and they put a cone on there. And then they showed him in a match. They said, okay, so now let's look at how Nadal's drill session um, feeds into his match. And he would hit the mark, you know, 90% of the time when he's serving, you know, when he practiced, he went out wide for this certain mark. And then when he played in the match, you know, they showed how he was able. And when he was serving well, he was hitting that mark. That's pretty intense. And that's pretty much how, you know, someone like a Rocky and a Piola or you yourself or, you know, when Cliff Swain was playing or, you know, any of these players out there that want to reach the top of their game have to do. There are no shortcuts.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I was curious about, this is going back to something you were saying earlier, you are able to make a living doing this racquetball coaching thing. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of hustle It, from what I've seen. That takes being able to go from place to place and running clinics. How have you been able to make that work?
1: Uh, well, you know, it started when I was um... – you know, a player. And I really couldn't, you know, um, make enough money, you know, because I wasn't qualifying. It took me two years to actually qualify into the main draw where the money was. So I would have to go in on a Tuesday and I would do a clinic Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and we'd start playing on Thursday. So, you know, years ago, you know, I was making maybe 100, 150 a night. And then as, you know, it grew and I developed that, you know, part of my career, I was making, you know, maybe 500 a night. So I'd go in, you know, for two nights, because you don't want to do it and be extremely tired afterwards. And when you play, um, I was making 500, you know, and okay, now I'm making a 1000. And then I was qualifying and I made some money qualifying and I was able to do it. But the biggest thing is, is, um, head, who now is head pen, but head owns pen. Um, I've been with them for over close to 35 years. And when I, in 1983, when I went to them and said, Look, I have an idea. I want to run a series of camps and clinics and exhibitions. I want to hit the grassroots level players of the game. Um, And I I want to use your product. I love your product. And, you know, we sat down and we talked about it. And I gave them a proposal, and they've been my sponsor ever since. I, I could not do it without their support, both. Um, financially and product, you know, they give me the balls and giveaways, and they believe in all the work that I do. And now they love that I coach because you know I'm coaching two of the best players, and they get you know they're on social media and they get a lot of publicity, and so they love all that. I write articles in the magazine, so you know Doug Annam, who's my boss, who actually is the uh, director of the U.S. Open Racquetball Tournament. Um, he's my boss in he's my boss in, uh, you know, for head, uh, I was able with their support to be able to go out and, uh, you know, pursue my dream, you know, which is coaching and doing clinics and exhibitions. And then about 10 years ago, uh, you know, we became, we went from the number four Manufactured to the number one and he needed help. He said, Fran, how would you like me to create a position for you? And uh, I've been uh, with head um, in that position for about 10 years, the national uh, promotions coordinator. I'm basically Doug Ganim's right-hand person. I handle all of the amateur players. We have about 900 amateur players that we sponsor around the country. I work with RMCs who are the people that uh, run the player program in each particular state. And uh, you know, I write articles for the IRT, for the USRA magazine. Um, you know, I'm on social media all the time. They love that. And, you know, so it's been a great, great partnership. And but without their support, without them believing in me, without Doug um creating a position for me, I couldn't do what I'm doing and be comfortable with with what I'm doing. Um and because of that, I'm able to to live the you know, a dream, you know, of yeah. being a coach. Um, have played the Pro Tour and then, you know, filtered into being a coach and still be in the 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 racquetball community that has been my family for 35 plus years. Um totally, totally happy. You know, when people I can't say that traveling doesn't get to me at times, but I absolutely love what I do. I'm very, very passionate about coaching, teaching, uh being Doug's right-hand person, helping people, you know, um, at tournaments, uh, you know, at the head pen booth, talking to people, just love it.
0: Fantastic. So I'm curious on a bigger racquetball overall as a sport level, what would be some things you would like to see done to help other people make more money in the sport or to help the sport grow? Or in in other words, to help the sport of racquetball get bigger because right now it seems to be on at more of a downward turn.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the grassroots level is where uh, it actually, you know, needs to be promoted, not at the tournament level. Okay. And um, so, you know, I'm uh, part of the teaching. I'm uh, one of the uh, USA R I P. IP Uh, master instructors with Jim Winterton and Jim Heiser. We go around the country and we develop the teaching program. We want to develop, um, you know, teachers out there that are, you know, coaching at the high school level or the junior high school level or collegiate, helping them, you know, become better coaches, better teachers. And um, so I've, you know, pretty much, you know, I, I make very minimal when I'm doing these Clinics, but you know, there's been a lot of time that I've had that we've all had to invest in that. So that's one area, um, in my opinion. You know what they did with the high school program in St. Louis, uh, what they've done in Oregon needs to be uh, you uh, needs to spread all over the country. There needs to be a high school, junior high school program in every state in the country. And last, I guess it was um, at nationals last year. Uh, Doug explained to me, he says, what the PGA Tour does for golf. He said, Fran, the PGA went to their, I guess, their teaching association and said, you know, we will give you this amount of money, a grant for you to go out, hire a national person. That person will then hire people in every state and every city of the country. And we want to have a golf club the kids that are not good enough to make the team in golf or in football or track or whatever it is, um, that love the sport. And we want to have a club sport. We want 10 boys, 10 girls. We'll get them all uniforms, like a jacket or whatever. And then they play people kind of like what they do in the high school racquetball where they play different, um, schools within their city. They started out, Doug told me the first year with 3000, uh juniors um, in, in the golf program, they are now up to 50,000. That's what racquetball needs to do. I love that model. I think we need to spend uh, or get sponsors or, you know, get grants to be able to do that kind of thing because that's where we're missing the boat is in the youth. Mm. Cause you know, like, okay, yeah, I'm one of the best coaches in the world, but eventually, you know, in, we, you know, when my students allow me to retire. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm going to want to move on, you know, and we're going to need somebody behind us. And you know we, we, we need to develop the youth, end of story. And I think that the, the, the model that St. Louis uses and Oregon uses in racquetball, and what Doug explained to me that they do in golf is something that we, we would need, in my opinion, to latch onto and use in our sport. To, to stop the bleeding, help us grow, and hopefully flourish again, like we did in the 80s.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you for bringing up that example. I think that's a fantastic model. And one last thing, I was curious, as far as your long history in the sport, do you have a favorite racquetball story? It doesn't have to be on the court, it can be off the court, but just a favorite story from your racquetball past?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, yes, I do. Uh it it's actually a funny story. I was coaching the US racquetball team and we were doing a goodwill tour in Mexico. This was when Mexico, you know, really was non existent in racquetball. Now they're a powerhouse. Um and we're doing a goodwill tour and we're in a bus and we're going from city to city and we stop on the side of the road and we order um, you know. Some drinks. And I said, I'd like a Coke to go with uh, some ice. <laughs> they gave me a Coke in a plastic bag tied up with a straw with ice in it. And that's what they gave me. And I I just, to this day, I still find it, you know, was amazing that that's what they consider a to-go versus you know, a glass or a cup that we know in in the U.S. It was just a funny, funny story.
0: <laughs> okay, that's great. That's not what I was expecting, but that's fantastic.
1: That's the first thing that came to my mind.
0: I love it. Okay. Well, Fran, thank you so much for joining me. I want to be respectful of your time, and thank you for joining me on a day where you've had two athletes, a hectic coaching day. You had two athletes in the finals of their respective divisions. and Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with or anything you'd like to plug?
1: No, I, I just think, you know, the, the most important thing is when you, when you start to play racquetball, you know, uh, part of the problem within racquetball, in my opinion, when it first became very, very popular, popular was you don't need to take lessons. Just grab a racket, go on the court, have fun. You'll love it. And you know, and then two, three years later, they have all these bad habits, and, you know, and then they come to people like myself, and they want, you know, a quick fix, or they want, you know, um, they want to learn the game, and but they're frustrated, and when you look at any other sport, you know, from, you know, people take golf lessons, people take tennis lessons, um, when, you know, kids are you know, in a you know, when they're on a football team, when they are uh, you know on a track team, you know they're always working on you know the fundamentals and you know building from the ground up, and that's what I recommend. I recommend not not go from the top down because then that's when you know things start to crumble and you know you reach the B level because you're athletic, but you don't really have the skill set. So, you know, whether it's take a lesson, whether it's by, you know, I have a book called, you know, uh, Championship Racquetball written by myself and, and Jason Medino. I have a video building your racquetball dream house. There's things online that you could look at, but become educated, learn the right way from the get go. You know, for me, I love to get somebody new. Like I consider it like putty. If they're in my hands, I can mold them to the way they need to be, you know, going in the right direction. But I see too many people come to people like myself and they have to undo what they've done for 20 years. And that's not always the easiest thing to do when they're in their 30s or 40s or even in their 60s. So, you know, like I said, my motto is don't just do it, do it right. Do, you know, learn how to play the game right, have fun, enjoy, uh, you know, become educated, you know, understand, uh, what it takes to, you know, to build yourself up from a C to a B to an A, um, enjoy. And then if you are fortunate enough, like myself to have people teach me, you know, and, you know, give back, you know, spend a little time helping somebody at the YMCA or whatever. And, but, um, don't just pick up a racket and play and then fall in love with the game, which is what most people do. And then you have to take steps backwards to really improve your game. And you'll love it. Because when you play well and, you know, you put yourself in a position to win and be competitive, that's the best feeling in the world. But when you're lost and you're like a deer with headlights and you don't know what's going on, you know, it's not fun. And racquetball should be fun.
0: That's a great way to end it. Racquetball should be fun. I agree. Yeah. Well, well, Fran, thank you so much for joining me. I've really appreciated this interview, and it was great sitting down and talking with you.
1: Well, I've always been a fan of yours, Dylan. I didn't even know you did this until last year when you told me, and some other people told me you did podcasts. It's, you know, I've seen you come through the junior ranks, you and your brother and, and your dad, and, uh, you know, it's great to see you uh, develop, you know, not only on the court, but as a great player. And, you know, cause I know that Rocky has the utmost respect for you. He played, I think you at the U S open last year and told me that, you know, you have game. Um, but to see you mature as a person, you know, um, and, uh, be humble. It's great. You know, uh, I love all the kids that have come up through, you know, the Oregon racquetball, you know, you know, you and Charlie and, you know, some of the women, you know, Caitlin Boyle and, you know, uh, you know, Wayne and Mitchell, you know, racquetball, we're just such a, a tight-knit group of people, and uh, it's just nice to see you um, not only giving back to racquetball like you're doing here, but I know that you're successful in, in work and you can't play as much racquetball as you'd like because you have a real job. Um, and uh, but, but thanks for including me in this. Uh, it's great, and I can't wait to see you in a few weeks in Minneapolis.
0: Yeah, thank you for the kind words, and yes, looking forward to the U.S. Open. It's going to be awesome.
1: Yeah, are you training?
0: <laughs> no, I haven't picked up a racket in oh. years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's typical, but I'm sure yeah. it's not true. <laughs> All
0: Especially right, yeah. The...
1: competitors are listening.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about me, competitors. All right, thank you, Fran. Oh, my Great.
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: That does it for the Racquetball Show podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into this one. If you are interested in reaching out or learning more, you can check out my website, racquetballshow.com, or you can reach out to me via email at dylan at racquetballshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. love to hear what you're interested in learning more about on this podcast, or just a general reach out and say hello. So, again, thanks for listening, and have a great day.